Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. It's summertime. Are you traveling anytime soon? Do you like to go to exotic destinations or, in some cases, that can even be places in the United States? Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Johnny Yates from Kaiser Permanente, and he's been in practice for, boy, 20 years we just calculated out. And he is board certified in family medicine, but has special interest in travel health and has actually practiced in exotic places around the world, like Nepal, before he came here to the islands. So we're going to talk about some tips and tricks on how to stay healthy before you go, while you go, and what to do if you get sick when you come back. Because there's a lot of folks who love to travel to wonderful destinations. The world has a lot of great things to see, but how can we do so and be healthy? So I want to thank Thank you for joining me today on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for allowing me to be here. Appreciate it. Well, you know, your advice is going to be well utilized by everybody, myself included. So let's talk about some simple things. We'll sort of start out with preparations before your trip. And this would be a trip pretty much anywhere, really. And then we'll talk a little bit about the trip and the destinations. And then we'll talk about what to do when you come home. So if you're going on a trip, regardless of where it is, you're leaving the islands, are there some things you should do if you're on some medication or if you're concerned about your ability to handle long flights or traveling? Absolutely. I think it's important, especially for people who have chronic medical conditions, to make sure that your medical conditions are controlled. And if you're going to be trying something that's really out of your usual realm of experience, so for instance, if you're going to go trekking in the Himalayas or you're going to do the Inca Trail in Machu Picchu and you're usually a bit more sedentary than that, then certainly getting clearance to to uh, do that type of uh, more extreme activity. Likewise, if you're going to go scuba diving and you're planning on getting certified for scuba diving while you're traveling, then it's good to make sure you have a physical checkup to get uh, get cleared for that type of activity as well. And maybe plan. You know, if you're going to go trekking somewhere in the Himalayas, you got to make sure that you aren't the couch potato up until the day you leave. Exactly. So if you're going to go on an athletic adventure, preparing in advance, knowing that you need to be able to walk a certain distance or you're going to go places where it might be a little bit out of your physical comfort zone until you start getting yourself up to speed with that particular activity that you want to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned having chronic medical conditions well controlled. There are a couple of things that people should really be careful about when they're flying. And, you know, it often uh, comes to mind, uh, be careful if you have extremely uncontrolled blood pressure. Yeah. And also if you if you have trouble with your breathing. You know, when we go up to 30,000 feet on planes, we don't have the same level of oxygen as we do at sea level. Right. So if you do have a trouble with your breathing... Make sure you know, will you need oxygen before your flight, or could you potentially need to do something to maximize your respiratory status? Right, and be sure to let the airlines know, too, because they need advance notice if you're going to have to carry oxygen, even if you're planning on bringing your own portable oxygen concentrator, for instance. Uh, that type of thing needs to be arranged in advance with the airlines, absolutely. And don't just show up at the airport yeah. and say, it's my carry-on, it's yeah. my carry-on. Yeah. There's a little bit more yeah. to it. Yeah. Now, what if you're on a lot of medications? If you're on injectable medicines, I've had some folks come to me and say, 
I think I need a letter that says I'm allowed to bring needles in the plane because I'm on insulin. So in some cases, you might need to have some documentation with you. I always say, you know, just in case, bring a list of what medications you're on, particularly if you need to have one of those available on board. Yep, absolutely. For the things that you bring on board too, like you mentioned, insulin, syringes, uh, blood glucose monitoring, things like that, I think it's very important to have documentation from your provider that you need these medications or equipment to bring with you on the flight in case of emergencies or just even really just to monitor your blood sugars. So a lot of these long-haul flights, you're crossing multiple time zones, your dietary habits have changed, so it's very important to monitor blood, blood sugars, for instance. What sort of advice do you have for people who want to avoid getting blood clots? It's another concern I know that can occur, particularly here we are in the middle of the Pacific. Anywhere you go, you're dealing with, unless it's a neighbor island, at least a four or five hour flight. Are there things they can do in advance to prevent? Yes, there are. First of all, what things that everyone can do, stay well hydrated, uh, try to avoid alcohol so it doesn't dehydrate you. Try to make sure that you get up and and walk as much as practical. I know sometimes, depending on if there's a lot of turbulence or other issues, it may be difficult to get up and walk. You can certainly do in-seat exercises, and sometimes the airlines have videos kind of showing you the different types of uh, exercises that you can do. And then for really long-haul flights and or for people who have high risk of blood clots, for instance, people with active malignancies or history of uh, uh, serious blood clots, some people may actually even need to be on a blood thinner for the flight. Talk to your doctor beforehand. Yes. Make sure if you need to, you have it available. And then there's the good old compression socks. Absolutely. They now sell those at various pharmacies. You don't have to get a prescription. You can get some mild compression socks, which have been proven to be effective for people to prevent clots if they have some other additional risk factor or if they're just going on a long flight. You know, you mentioned get up and walk around as much as possible. That's possible or practical because these days they kind of want everybody to sit in their seats. Yep. There's some restrictions as far as movement in the cabin. So being careful with that. Now, if you're on a lot of medications, you know, how difficult is it if you have an emergency and they go, well, what pills are you on? And we've probably both been in a situation where somebody says, I'm on the little white round pill. Oh, yeah, there's only one of those. (laughs) So what are some things people could do? You know, everybody's got smartphones these days. Is there something they could do that would help them to be able to know which medicine is which? Yeah, I recommend that people take pictures of their prescription bottles, but also to bring the actual medications, leave them in the actual prescription bottles, take that with them. Also have another list, uh, just a written of medications. And then sometimes it's good to, if you're traveling with somebody, just kind of uh, make sure that all of the information isn't necessarily with one person, because if that person, something happens to that person and they're unable to either speak or communicate, then you've at least got someone else who's also uh, aware of what medications you're taking. But I'm a big fan of taking photos of other, not just medications, maybe your most recent EKG, if you have heart, heart conditions, medical devices. A lot of people you know, travel with pacemakers or certain prosthetics. It's good to actually have the device information uh, with you in case you have to seek medical care while you're overseas. Yeah, you never want to have to do it, but there are some situations where it can happen, yeah. and you're happy that you have that information with you. Although, luckily, these days, and I know Kaiser Permanente has this offered as well, there's a way you can log on remotely through the Internet online yes. to get some of the information. But it's always nice to have it with you. Yep. And remember to tell someone, I would assume, your 
how to unlock your phone. Yeah. <laughs> That's you know, a great it's great point. Yep. if you have the code Absolutely. and you're not awake or Absolutely. conscious. So. And, you know, even things like I, I, I make it a habit to share my itinerary with family and friends just in case uh, something happens or if they're curious or they need to reach me in case of something happening back home. I think that's important. And one thing that I didn't really appreciate until I kind of had an experience a a couple of decades ago is if you're going to be somewhere where there's the potential for any type of instability, whether it's natural disasters, political instability, or you're going to be away for a long period of time, it's good to register with the state the department, the country where you're going to, because they're able to, uh, one, keep you apprised if anything new comes up that uh, they need to alert the citizens, uh, U.S. citizens of. But uh, also they can sometimes be of assistance uh, if you get into trouble or if there are certain things like natural disasters, political uh, demonstrations, uh, terrorist attacks, things like that. So how would you do such a thing? You can actually do it uh, online now. Uh, and and uh, depending on the country that you're going to, there may be certain... Um, specific information that you need to provide, but it can all be done through the State Department and the State Department website. Uh, you can also follow them on social media. The State Department and the, um, the, uh, the State Department actually has a really active Twitter uh, feed, and so they, they announce frequently demonstrations, uh, certain political uh, issues in different countries, and they have a lot of tips about uh, keeping safe and healthy while traveling. So there's good things on Twitter? Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. And I'm here with Dr. Johnny Yates, and we're talking a little bit about, about what to do when you're traveling and what sort of things you might want to keep in mind, particularly if you're going on an adventure this coming holiday time over the summer. So when we come right back, we're going to be talking a little bit about different countries and different parts of the world and what immunizations are required and how do you get them and all the logistics that you may want to know if you're planning your your next trip somewhere exotic that might just require a little bit more attention to preventative health. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here with Dr. Johnny Yates, and we're talking today about what sorts of things would be really helpful to know before you go traveling. Now, you've been at Kaiser Permanente for quite a while. Prior to that, you did spend some time in Nepal, and that seems yes. to be a place where there could always be some geographic instability, I mean, earthquakes, etc. Yeah. And so when you were there... What were some of the things that you were happy you had done in preparation for your trip? You were there for about a year, year and a half? A year and a half. So certainly being vaccinated uh, against uh, not only the routine vaccinations that we would recommend everyone get, even if they don't travel, but I know, for instance, that some of the specialty vaccines I'd gotten, like typhoid, uh, typhoid's a problem in Nepal, uh, so it's through food and water. So actually having seen patients with typhoid and paratyphoid in clinic made me appreciate having had the typhoid vaccine. Another big one was rabies vaccine because rabies is a big problem in, in Nepal. And our clinic, uh, when I worked there, was really the only place where you could reliably get the human rabies immune globulin. And so we saw a lot of people, both tourists and local uh, Nepalis, 
come in for post-exposure rabies treatment. And uh, I, I know I had a couple of close calls with the pretty aggressive dogs. So, I, you know, being vaccinated against rabies was uh, was also something I was grateful for. And then I think when it came to trekking, just being um, knowledgeable about altitude sickness, I think that's very important uh, because the more you are aware of some of the symptoms of altitude sickness, the, the less likely you are to keep trying to push through and getting into trouble because nearly everyone that we saw who was evacuated from the Himalayas because of altitude sickness, they had actually signs or symptoms early on, but they kind of downplayed it, kind of attributed to anything else but altitude sickness and kept going up and up and up and then got into trouble and had to be evacuated down. So there's actually some places here in the United States that are higher in altitude. You know, we're all used to sea level because, you know, there's the ocean outside. But you could go to places like Denver or Salt Lake City and sometimes have a situation where you're at a higher altitude that you're not used to. What are some of the early symptoms of altitude sickness? So headache is a cardinal symptom of altitude sickness. Um, Profound fatigue. Uh, and, and, of course, when you're at altitude and you're exerting yourself, it's natural to feel fatigue. But oftentimes, if you take a break, you kind of feel like, okay, you're, you're going to you know, uh, recover a bit. Same thing with shortness of breath. So shortness of breath is a pretty common symptom, regardless of whether you have altitude sickness or not. But if you're actually feeling shorter breath at rest, that's a danger sign. It could mean that you're developing pulmonary edema or fluid in the lungs. Um, neurological symptoms, uh, being confused, um, aside from the headaches, but being confused, sometimes having difficulty walking uh, or ataxia. Uh, those are some of the other signs as well. And sometimes it can be quite subtle. Uh, I've certainly seen where people just kind of um, develop kind of like a, a blank or kind of a dazed look, and, and it's not until family members realize, hey, something's not right, and it turns out it's uh, altitude sickness. And there's ways to treat it. Absolutely. Yeah. The first key being... Get out of the altitude if you can avoid it. (laughs) See if you can go down. Uh, But certainly if you're on a trip, a lot of people want to go places. You mentioned, you know, Peru and the Inca Trail, and that's always something that could potentially cause troubles. There's medications you can take to prevent it, and there's also things you can do locally if you're in this country to deal with that. So it sounds like you saw some folks clearly in Nepal, that's at altitude, where you were able to provide them some assistance, and hopefully they did well subsequent to that because you can't, well, you can ignore the symptoms, that's not a good plan. Right. That's where people get into trouble. Yeah. And there are medications that help people prevent or treat and or treat altitude sickness. One of the common ones is called acetazolamide or Diamox, and that can actually help prevent you from developing altitude sickness or at least significantly reduce the risk of developing it. And there's this common misperception that it, all it does is mask symptoms, and it's actually not true. It actually helps speed up the acclimatization process. So you know, I tell folks that if you're taking Diamox and you feel well at altitude, it's because you're okay, not because it's just covering up symptoms. So, uh, and then we have certain medications for treatment, depending on whether it's, uh, pu- you know, fluid in the lungs or pulmonary edema or brain swelling from the cerebral edema. Yep. Lots of things that can happen, but hopefully prevented. Now, you mentioned vaccinations and you mentioned typhoid vaccination. There's some other ones. When you go to the CDC's website, and I'd encourage everybody who's traveling to take a look at that because the cdc.gov.gov has an excellent website that has some great information for travelers on what sorts of immunizations might be necessary for them. And every place you go, no matter where you're headed, it always says, make sure that you update your childhood vaccinations. And we We've seen some issues here even in the islands with people who may have gotten mumps and may not have been immunized or might have lost their immunity over time. 
So for those folks who are traveling to areas where they're, where that's listed, they should make sure their tetanus is up to date, make sure they've gotten an adult polio update, make sure they've gotten measles, mumps, rubella, kind of the standard fare. Right, right. And with tetanus, I, I make it a point, especially if it's been a while since you've had the tetanus vaccine with pertussis or whooping cough, because that's uh, certainly uh, a reemerging infection. And then arguably the most important one, because it's certainly the most a uh, common vaccine-preventable infection would be flu. And so a lot of people don't think about that, including if they're traveling to the tropics. But in the tropics, flu is spread year-round. And so um, traveling uh, is a risk factor for influenza or flu. So uh, we always say it's important to make sure that you're up to date with all the routine vaccines, including flu, which is a routine vaccine now. Very much so. And then there's some other ones that are optional. Hepatitis A is often recommended as it is a food and water exposure. And we did see hepatitis A outbreaks here in the islands. So, you know, you want to make sure that you're protected from that. If you don't have time to get all of the vaccines, but you can at least get the first one in the series, does that provide you some protection? It does. So for hepatitis A, for instance, to get lifetime immunity, it's a two-shot series. But the one shot uh, will protect you for up to a year in many cases. And it's also the type of shot that we say you literally could get on your way to the airport because uh, uh, the incubation period of hepatitis A is such that if you were to get the vaccine the day you left the U.S. and were exposed to hepatitis A the day after you arrived at your destination, by the time you would start developing symptoms, the vaccine would have some uh, effect, and so you'd probably be less sick than you would otherwise would be. Likewise with hepatitis B, which is a, a, a liver infection, but you get it through blood and bodily fluids, some people say all travelers should be vaccinated against it in case you need to seek medical care while abroad and you can't really um, validate the sterility of medical equipment and things. But that's typically a three-shot series over six months. But if you get the first two shots uh, you know, within the, the month before you leave, there's adequate protection for most people. So don't let the series idea make you just say, oh, it's too late, I'm not going to get it. You still could get a benefit. Yep. And then there's actually... More and more information looking at some of the specialty travel vaccines like rabies vaccine, Japanese encephalitis vaccine, where accelerated series uh, really can work. And so Japanese encephalitis is one where typically it's two shots a month apart, but uh, there's a, a lot of data now showing that two shots a week apart may be sufficient, although you may need to get a booster sooner. And likewise for rabies, there's... Uh, um, information now about uh, really accelerating the rabies vaccination series so that uh, people don't defer that just because they don't have the traditional month, you know, to, to get the entire series. So something is better than nothing. For the most part, rabies is kind of unique in the sense that if you can't at least get the accelerated series, which actually in the U.S. is not approved yet, but if you can't get the accelerated series, it's probably best to not get anything because what happens is if you're only partially immunized against rabies vaccine, I mean, ra- against rabies with the pre-exposure vaccine, and then you have a potential rabies exposure. So let's say you just get the first dose of the rabies vaccine before you leave. But then your first week at your destination, you get bitten by a potentially rabid animal. It really messes up the post-exposure treatment because there's really no guidelines on what to do. So uh, it's really quite the quandary. So so that's the one vaccine. That's I'd the say, all or nothing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do it the right way yeah, or not. Exactly. But not everybody traveling would need to do that. It Correct. would depend on if you're going to an area staying long enough where that would be a potential, maybe somewhere rural or somewhere that... Right, whether it's, it's you're staying for a long period of time or high-risk activity. So we've had people go to do veterinarian work. 
veterinary work. Okay. Uh, well, in, if you're doing dog, veterinary yeah, work, exactly. that's yeah. a high risk yeah, exposure. Exactly. Because the animals. Now, there's been a little bit of a issue with yellow fever. So yellow fever vaccination is available, but there is an, a national shortage. Yeah. I think a worldwide shortage. It's a worldwide shortage. Exactly. Yep. And so if you're going to an area where it's endemic, do your best to get the shot. But if you are not, then don't get it if you're not going to be around those areas because that might be taking it from someone who could desperately need it. Yeah. And, and the the unique thing about yellow fever vaccine is it can be required by a country for uh, entry purposes. And sometimes people actually need to get the vaccine before they can even get their visa. Um, but uh, yellow fever is, is pretty geographically restricted, tropical South America and sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so, uh, you know, most travelers aren't going to those areas. Now, sometimes there may be a situation where if you are stopping in one yellow fever country on your way to another country that your final destination may say, hey, you stopped in country X that has yellow fever, so we need proof that you've been vaccinated. So sometimes um, that can complicate things. Places like Ethiopia, for instance, if you have a layover of more than 12 hours, uh, um, even if you don't leave the airport, you're still required to have the yellow fever vaccine or, or at least a waiver saying that you couldn't get it for whatever reason, medical reason. Well, and that's a good reason to go to a travel clinic and get a yeah, consult, I'll tell you. Absolutely, yep. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about what do you do if you come home and you might be sick? Who should you see? And is there any way that we're keeping tabs on what happens to people when they come back from various places and they're ill and what we can do about it? We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, here with Dr. Johnny Yates from Kaiser Permanente, and he runs a travel clinic there, has a lot of exposure himself to traveling to exotic locations, and also knows what sorts of things people need to do to stay healthy before their trip, during their trip, and we're going to talk about what happens if you come home and you're not. Now, you're part of a program, the Geosentinel program. What is that about, and why is it something that we ought to all keep an eye on. So GeoSentinel, it's an international surveillance network. It was uh, started by the International Society of Travel Medicine, and the Centers for Disease Control is the major partner and funder of this project. There are 71 sites worldwide, and we have one here in Hawaii. And what uh, GeoSentinel does is it tracks illnesses in, in return travelers. And it collects certain epidemiological information like, you know, where you were, when you got sick, what your final diagnosis was, a lot of other things, too. Um, and the whole point is to try to pick up either patterns of, of illness where either you have an outbreaks of, of new infections, so Zika would be a, a, a really relevant one, or even with the current yellow fever situation, yellow fever outbreak in Brazil, GeoSentinel has been really at the forefront, forefront of uh, um, uh, alerting providers about uh, yellow fever in travelers. Uh, but also, not only just outbreaks, but when certain infections... Um, show up in places where we thought they shouldn't be, 
or, or, or you have uh, with climate change, for instance, there may be uh, an increase in distribution of vectors of certain um, um, infections. So you have mosquitoes uh, in places where they weren't before. So you have the potential for new infections or at least infections that were previously thought to not exist in certain areas pop up. And so uh, GeoSentinel has really been uh, important in that sense because not, it not only helps us counsel travelers before they go. So instance, for instance, the, the situation with the yellow fever in Brazil, there were several tourists that died from yellow fever disease over the past year. And most of them traveled to a certain island right off the coast of Rio. Uh, uh, and it's a popular tourist destination. So Ilio Grande. So people know now, okay, you know what, this is a hot spot for yellow fever. So if you're going to go to that island, you better be vaccinated. You'd be one of those folks who gets the shot. Exactly, exactly. And the Zika virus is another great example because some of the first cases of Zika virus attributed to certain countries were picked up by geosentinel clinics where they had travelers returning, being diagnosed with Zika virus from places that weren't previously thought to have Zika. Interesting. So that's how we can track. And all these different, you said there are 71 centers, they can all communicate, keep an eye on things, and sort of update everybody about what's available to help prevent that particular infection. Now, if you come back from your trip, and you think you got sick, are there certain types of illnesses that should be more of an alert than others? Yes, absolutely. So if you've traveled to an area where there's malaria, and you come back and you get a fever uh, within, depending on, on where you were, uh, depends on the type of malaria species that we might be worried about. But what I tell folks is if you come back with the fever within the first few months of, of your return, and you were in a malarious area, irrespective of whether you took preventative tablets or not, you need to seek medical attention right away and be sure to tell the provider that you were in a malarious area because it's important to get tested for malaria because that's one of the, these uh, serious tropical infections that can be deadly. So uh, that's probably the most uh, important one. If you come back and you got a little head cold, serious or kind of let it ride? I would say that if it's a head cold and you don't have a fever, I, I, then I think you can kind of use your best judgment as, as to whether or not to just let it ride. We know the respiratory infections are very common in travelers, so it could just be uh, a cold. Now, if you have a fever, it could be actual influenza, so that may be important to, to know whether that's the actual flu or not, not only to, to help you get better. So if you have flu and you get seen and, and diagnosed early enough, there may be medication to help you reduce the, the duration of your illness, but also from a public health perspective. If you have actual influenza, that's useful information for, for the public health officials to have as well. So I think, you know, if, if it's a minor illness, a relatively minor illness without a fever, then, you know, use your own judgment. Anything with the fever, though, that's kind of where I get concerned and say, you know what, you should probably get checked out. Uh, rashes would be another thing, uh, too. Now, if you think, if you're pretty certain that you got a certain rash because of, uh, you know, some uh uh, new exposure that, you know, whether it's some type of chemical or, 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 or something that you handled or, or some plants or bugs or something like that, that's one thing. But, but uh, new rashes can also be a, a sign of sometimes either, if it's not a serious infection, at least one that may have public health uh, uh, importance. So things like dengue fever and Zika virus oftentimes can present with just a rash. Usually they have fever along with them, but not always. It's a broad uh, range of uh, spectrum of, of illness. And so with things like uh, rashes and fevers, uh, I think it's important to get checked out pretty quickly. What about gastrointestinal illnesses? 
So diarrhea is extremely common. In fact, if you take travelers going to a developing country uh, for a two-week stay, over half of them will get diarrhea. So if it's mild diarrhea, probably nothing to worry about. Stay well hydrated. Take Imodium if, unless there's a reason why that you can't do that. I would say if you have diarrhea with blood or if you have diarrhea with fever or if you're having severe diarrhea or let's say you had diarrhea and then it seems to go away and then come back, those would be indications to get checked out because they may be something that either is um, maybe you know less common or maybe sometimes even a parasitic infection if it's something that's kind of been going on for a while. And um, those are the types of things that are less likely to just kind of go away on their own. I find it curious that some of the highest risks for people would be a lot of the folks who go to visit families in rural parts of other countries, because you might just wind up eating food that your auntie prepared and think that it's okay, but in fact, your system may not be set up to handle what their system is used to being exposed to. So there's a lot of different variations on the theme. Well, I certainly feel like I've learned a lot about what to do the next time I'm about to travel, and I appreciate you sharing some of the information and experiences that you've had with all of our listeners today on The Body Show. So thank you for sharing your expertise. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. We'll have to do it again. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show, and you can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week when we talk some more about health topics, how to stay stay safe, be safe, and come back as healthy as you can when you go on those exotic adventures. We'll talk about some more health issues next Monday right here on The Body Show. See you then.